0: Good evening, everyone. I know you're enjoying dinner, but uh, we're going to have a little bit of entertainment. Hopefully it's entertaining. Uh, my name is Greg Grevenstead. I'm the editor-in-chief at Rider Magazine. Those of you that were here last night know that Rider has been involved with Maricade since almost the beginning. Uh, we sponsored the opening celebration and uh, get a little bit of feedback. Um, so what we're going to do is something... What we're going to do is something... A little bit different. Um, Rider, in addition to the magazine, our website, and so forth, we have a podcast that comes out every two weeks. So we do an interview with someone. Christian did an episode with us earlier this year, uh, talked about uh, motorcycling topics. And so uh, that is something that's available on various podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Spotify, and so forth. So what we're going to do is uh going to interview the Dutchers this evening, and we're going to talk about AmeriCade, and then this will be a podcast episode. Some of you may be asking, what is a podcast? Uh, if you're asking that question, then uh, it is just basically you know radio that you can get on any mobile device or through your computer. So uh, we're going to go ahead and get started, and uh, hopefully you enjoy this. Afterwards, it's going to be the nights of the round table, so please stick around. So uh, again, uh, first of all, I want to introduce who we have on stage. So we have Christian Dutcher, who is currently the director of AmeriCade. We have his father, Bill Dutcher, the founder of AmeriCade. And then Jimmy Dutcher is. Bill's wife and Christian's mother, and so, what <laughs> many of you have been coming to Americade for many years. Uh, so the very first Americade was in uh, 1981.
1: Is that correct, Bill? The idea, was, the idea was 1981, but the first one, the first Aston Cape East got off the ground in May of '83. May of
0: '83. So we're closing in on the 40 anniversary of AmeriCade. That will come up in, in 2023. So what I'd like to do is, is, many of you have been coming to AmeriCade for many years. Uh, this is obviously a special year because it's in September. It was canceled last year because of the pandemic. It's been rescheduled for the fall. But I'd like to find out again, sort of how did AmeriCade get started? You mentioned that it was originally called Aspencade East. How did it
1: come up with a name like that? Okay, well, there's a common misunderstanding that the word Aspencade somehow relates to Colorado, but it really doesn't. Uh, The word Aspen was created by the Ruidoso, New Mexico Chamber of Commerce, because they wanted to find an excuse in the fall to get people to visit Ruidoso, New Mexico. And then is when the Aspen trees changed color from green to gold. And they also had the biggest quarter horse track in the country, and so they put a cavalcade of horses together. With an Aspen Festival, and they called it Aspen K, and that's where that name started from. And then, 11 years later, I contacted the owner of that. as part of a longer story, and got uh, the OK to use the word Aspen K East. In 1983, I had a three-year deal with Till Thompson, and so 83, 84, and 85 were called Aspen K here, and then in '86 we changed it to American. So let's back up
0: even before then. So for somebody to start a motorcycle rally, particularly a motorcycle touring rally, you obviously had been a, a motorcyclist for a long time, a, an enthusiast. I know you have a racing background. Really, how did you get involved in motorcycling? You know, I think
1: it's probably in utero. Uh, <laughs> I was one of those kids that always played with this bicycle. And then, uh, it wasn't until I was 14 that I actually got on a motorcycle. It was a Triumph Tiger cup in the dirt. and I. I got it. It was it was meant to be. I just understood it and so forth and so on. And uh, oh gosh, uh, I was 17 and I found myself in Europe hitchhiking, and I needed a better way to get around. This is the politically correct version. I needed a better way to get around, so I ended up with a 250 BMW that I bought for 100 bucks near Hamburg, Germany, Germany, and 100 bucks American back in 19 back in 1959. I'm not a spring chicken. And uh, So I had the enormous pleasure of riding this bike through the Alps, and that's what really did it for me. I was 17 on my own on a relatively slow 250 BMW, but loving the Alps, and that never got out of my head. So that kind of drove my life after that. Um, long story short, I ended up as the sales manager for a company called Voltaco. They were a Spanish company that made racing motorcycles, which was great because it fed my habit. So for 10 years I was up trying to set up full taco dealers and racing all the time. I, I've done every kind of racing, road racing, dirt track, motocross, enduro, ice racing. Uh, I've done everything except hill climbs. Somehow I missed hill climbs, but pretty much everything else. So that's, that was my life, it was all motorcycling, and then I ended up as the director of PR for Harley Davidson in their bad old years. I was hired by AMF in 1975 to try to solve Harley-Davidson's very large PR problems. I mean, in 75, even Easy Riders was taking shots at Harley. So they definitely had a PR problem. So anyway, 80, uh, what did I, say? Did I say 75? 75 to 81, I was a PR director for Harley. And then uh, they wanted me to move to Milwaukee. They bought their freedom from AMF, and they wanted me to bring the family from by then we lived on the shores of Lake George with a 32 mile long drinking pure lake in our front yard and a mountain in our backyard and we were going to presumably trade that for going to live out in Milwaukee and that was when I decided to get off the bus and so I quit and uh, the result of that was I found myself with no job two houses couldn't sell the other house because it was a depression was certainly a deep recession in the fall 81, and I literally sat up in bed one night with the notion that maybe that Aspen Cape thing that I'd seen in New Mexico just might really work pretty well out here because it's a beautiful place to ride, it's easy to get to, there's a million motels, lots of restaurants. It it had all the pieces necessary and it took me two years to make it happen. the, The bright idea came to me in October, I think, of 81. It was May of 83. We got it off the ground, but I, I will take this opportunity to, to, to say that my wife, when I said to her, as we were going to sleep, and I sat up in bed and said, "Hey, I got a great idea," and she said to me uh, something along the lines of, "Well, why don't you roll over and go to sleep?" <laughs> well, wives have been known to say that to husbands' good ideas at ten the night. So with that encouragement, I went down the hall and called the organizer of the Aston Cade out in. New Mexico, I'd met him, it was my job to know everybody. And it turned out the timing was right. He wanted to leave Ruedelso, he was divorcing his wife of 30 years to marry some woman who was a judge in San Diego and they'd sold the convention center out there to Texas Governor John Connolly. Yes, that same Texas governor that was in Kennedy's car when Kennedy got assassinated. He and a bunch of uh, backers were buying the convention center to turn it into gondos so till was sick of the whole thing and my timing was perfect and the moral of that story is luck luck is a big deal timing is a big deal but that worked very well for me right on now Jenny i would like to ask you what was it
0: like in the early days of starting america the idea of obviously you already lived here in lake george it's a beautiful place uh you know it's a Quaint Village, I'm sure it's changed a lot in the last 30-something years, but what was it like to help try and put together a motorcycle rally?
2: It was very interesting because I had never done that. I was a housewife, a, a very reclusive person. Uh, it, it just blew like topsy. The first year we expected 1,800 people. We had 1,800 people signed up. And uh, we had all our, all our family and friends. Uh, helped us uh, our two kids, all their friends, my brother, my sister, my brother-in-law all of us got together we, we had the offices in our house and uh, the first year we had people driving through town on motorcycles not knowing what was going on but they were so excited they came in and signed up it was it was just really it was fun Bill had a lot of uh, really internal knowledge about how to put mailing lists together and he had contacts with the manufacturers and it just it just grew and it was it was fun actually it was exciting and in the early days there were a lot of characters women women didn't ride motorcycles very much any woman who rode a motorcycle was considered odd and we had i think two women's groups one was women on wheels um, and that was run by an old woman named Louise something or other. She was a real character. And then there was uh, the Motor Maids. And um, i trying to th- I think. Yeah, some of the original members of the Motor Maids. Um, and when they came through, it was interesting. Also, people didn't have that many tattoos. Now tattoos are everywhere. But we, I remember one time, a woman came through and she had tattoos of her two daughters who were with her on her arm, and we all thought that was absolutely fascinating. I wish I'd kept a diary because we had so many more interesting, odd characters who rode motorcycles. Than.
0: Well, and how was the village of Lake George and the local community? Were they receptive to having motorcyclists come into town?
2: Well, Bill, Bill will tell you that side. I'll tell you as
1: well, but he, he he has the better story. Okay. When I pitched the idea of a motorcycle convention in Lake George Village to the mayor, the mayor, Bob Blaze, who's still a mayor by the way, he's the longest serving mayor in the United States, but before he had become mayor, he was chief of police in Lake George and he had picked up some bleeding bodies outside a bar in the center of Lake George Village when some, I don't know if they were in Angels, but there was a, a gang fight there. So that was a big deal about 10 years before blood on the streets in Lake George. So here I come in knocking on the door saying, hey, how about a nice motorcycle convention? And he knew he had a sales job with the uh, town council to sell the idea, but I was able to convince him. And uh, they, they got behind it tentatively. A lot of businesses were not open the first year. They were, you know, they, they were scared. And uh, they very quickly discovered to get unscared because the, the, the crowd that arrived was not what they feared and, in fact, was a generous, high-tipping, fun crowd they had here.
0: Well, and so, Christian, I'd like to ask you. I mean, you basically grew up with America. So what was it like to be you know, young and your parents decided to start this motorcycle rally? What was that like?
3: It was very excited. I you know, I was I think I was fourteen when it happened and as Jimmy noted it was just all hands on got great excitement and having never experienced none of us have having never experienced before the gates open and people just start flooding into the room and there's great excitement and they're wondering what they're gonna do, they've never seen this area before, we're tearing tickets, we're running out of tickets, we're making more tickets. So it was just it, you know the, the thing that my parents always said it was like throwing a party and everybody came you know not half of it, but everybody came and it was fun uh, just trying to make it work it was uh, you know it stressed the system in a very good way and we were all focused on
0: let's just roll with it and see what we can do to make sure that everybody has a good time. Well and it, so I'm curious you know did this rally start I mean it has a very inclusive family oriented vibe here this is not a Sturgis type event this is not a Bike Week type event is that, you know, how did it evolve I mean, in terms of your initial, um, what the rally was like in terms of the types of people that came here. It's very much a touring-focused rally because you've got beautiful roads nearby. There's lots of gold wings. There's lots of touring bikes. There's not necessarily a lot of loud sport bikes and things
1: like that. So how did that sort of evolve over time? To some degree, it was a natural evolution because Aston Cave had become a touring rally. It was heavy on the Harley dressers, the Honda dressers, and what have you. Um, so by picking up the name Aston we carried that flavor with us. But also at that time, all the Japanese manufacturers were trying to get into the touring market. You know, Honda had the Gold Wing, but here comes Suzuki with the cavalcade, Here comes uh, Kawasaki with the Voyager. Here comes Yamaha with their Venture, thank you. Uh, and, and everybody was getting into it. The Vetter it was being put on all sorts of motorcycles, and then people were discovering that they could tour long distances, so it was a developing market that worked well. But to further answer your question, uh, it was not by accident that I had the first thing listed on the schedule as worship services for the by the Christian Motorcycle Association, because that was another one of my ways of communicating to the market that this may not be the uh, drunken brawl that you might be presuming it might be. So uh, we were we were pretty straight the first few years. We were we keep stay a mile away from alcohol. I mean, alcohol and motorcycles still don't go together very well, but uh, we were really toxic on the concept back then. Uh, We never accepted an ad in the program from a a booze distributor or beer distributor. We still don't. Uh, Never accepted an ad from a cigarette company. Uh, It was the, the many little clues that you put out there that help establish what it is you're trying to do. Understood, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because you talk about the development
0: of touring motorcycles. I mean, there was even a version of the Goldwing called the Aspencade. You mentioned it, the Cavalcade. I mean, there are, um, and also, uh, me working for Rider Magazine, and It was started in 1974, I know you have a long relationship with Dennis Rouse, the founding publisher, with Mark Tuttle, who was the editor-in-chief for 32 years, our longtime national sales manager, Joe Saluzzo. I mean, these are old friends of yours, uh, people that are contributors over the years, Clement Salvadori. Bill Sturmer, a lot of folks that have come here over the years, and so it's it's natural that Rider and Americade have had a a supportive relationship over the years because you know we can come here and we can ride in a different part of the country. We can meet a lot of people that read our magazine and enjoy this sort of experience. Uh,
1: so yeah, it's actually it's been really nice. I think Rider magazine was also part of the brew. It made it clear what kind of an event we were doing. Rider was on board right from the beginning, and having them as a prime partner to the event helped also make it clear what kind of an event it was going to be.
0: Well so how has it evolved over the years? I mean you were talking about how, you know, Christian was just saying that uh, that you have it was very popular from the beginning, but how has it evolved in terms of all of the activities? I mean, you couldn't have an America that you have today in the very beginning. So is it through the feedback from the the rally goers that the events that
1: you've added and so forth how's that that evolved over time yeah you named a major part of it we always provided questionnaires to all our attendees a long legal sheet of paper with about 50 different questions on it we got a surprising high return i mean we got maybe 15 20 percent return on something where people actually had to, had to write <laughs> i know that's a pen or a pencil you know that thing the thing we used to do and uh, we'd get the feedback and we digest it very carefully see what people liked and what people didn't like. And it was like a speedometer, you know, you looked in the speedometer and decided, okay, this is a good thing to do or not a good thing to do.
2: We would have questionnaires that would come back and we'd have a complaint. We'd have maybe, out of 30 questions, we'd have maybe 15 complaints. So we'd have 15 complaints and yet at the very end it would say, are you coming back and next year? Yeah, I wouldn't miss it. And we we always listened to what they said for whatever changes about the the mini tours. Uh, We we always took on board what they said and tried to follow what they said. And I think it evolved more successfully every year because of that. Because we just listened to them.
3: I'd like to add that Bill and Ginny truly wanted to establish that, that personal touch so that when they, you know, the first group that they would see would be the registration people when they would come in, and they so often, especially in the early years, they knew many of their names, and there was this personal connection between Ginny and the staff and the people coming in uh, for years, and that's still true to to some degree, but it's grown so much that you lose a little bit of that, but that was something that was very intentionally and naturally cultivated by them and Bill the same way. You know, Bill, they've always made it never about Them and it's always about making sure the event is tailored to the people and and, and their feedback.
0: Well, I mean, as anybody knows, that you know, repeat business or repeat customers is uh, the lifeblood of any successful organization or company. So, having people come back year after year, this is where people that I know it's traditionally the first week of June, so people know exactly when it's going to be. They can plan, you know, to take that week of vacation. Uh, They may have favorite places where the hotels they stay in, the restaurants they eat at campgrounds, uh, people meet friends that they may only see during AmeriCade. I mean, that is, I think, is part of the success of a rally. It's really, it's about the interaction that people have, whether it's in some of these social events or guided rides or something like that. It's it's not just the riding. If it was just the riding, that would be one thing, but it really has to be the people. And so the people that run
1: the organization, I know, how many volunteers do you typically have during an AmeriCade event? Well, in years past, when the event was more spread out, we had nearly 200 Volunteers, but trying to keep track of 200 volunteers and keep people happy is It's a fair challenge. I was going to comment about the timing in the first week of June. The first few Aspen Cades were in the middle of May, and I guarantee you the feedback that we got on the questionnaires uh, included this one, I'll never forget. It was from a guy I'd actually worked with at AMF who came up here, and he went on the Lake Placid tour and he was dressed properly for Lake George Village and went up there and it actually started to snow. And he had to check into a motel in Lake Placid and wait for the snow to pass. So (laughs) needless to say, we got the message loud and clear that we should slide it a little later in the season. On
2: that note, someone reported him missing because apparently he never called his friends to tell them where he was. We had, you know, um, our staff, our staff became great friends with each other and it was like a big family and it, and it still is today you, you wouldn't see these people for a year you wouldn't see these people for a year and then it was like you you had seen them all year, all year long you had such great friendships and we still have four or five of our original staff members who have been with us for what 38, 40 years and uh, it's just it like a big family. And, then, and they took great pride in Americade. It was their rally. And I think that's what made Americade so popular, is because the staff was so good as well. And we honestly we couldn't do
0: it without like the staff. Their, their value is immeasurable. Well, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of friendly people that at, at any place that you're going to interact with them, if they're check in, uh, Christian mentioned the check in uh, process during registration or the check in uh, wristbands, everybody is, is very friendly. And for me personally, I, you know, is I like to be in environments where I feel welcomed, you know, whether it's you go to your favorite restaurant, uh, Christian was saying that people would maybe know your name or something like that. That is an important part of the experience that is what's going to bring people back. So, you know, since AmeriCade is the sort of thing where it's, it, as it evolved, I mean, as soon as one event ends, you're, I, you know, I guess you start preparing for the next one almost right away. It's a year-round process to prepare
1: for AmeriCade, is it not that? Well, and that has been the challenge that Christian has had to deal with because he had to make the decision back in December whether we were going to have an AmeriCade in June or not, and I'll give the mic to him because it was his decision and it was a very tough decision.
3: Yeah, hugely time. An AmeriCade ends. We start planning for the next one, so to pull off an AmeriCade in this environment is really, really, really difficult because, A, it takes 12 months of planning, and B, it's like hitting a moving target with all of the, the cascading effects that COVID has had. Uh Okay, it's like hitting a moving target with all the changes that cast, uh, that uh, COVID has presented uh, to us. So uh, we're very pleased. It feels very much nice like pulling a rabbit out of a hat to make this American happen. It's required endless <laughs> stressful hours, uh, but it's great. It's really fun. Well, I mean,
0: clearly you have to be dedicated to doing this because anybody that uh, you know knows that. There's the IMS Outdoors show series and the New York show was canceled. That was supposed to be over Labor Day weekend. And I'm sure that was probably causing sleepless nights wondering it's because it's not entirely up to you whether you can have an event. If the state decided to mandate certain regulations that wouldn't allow an event of this size. So I'm sure it's reassuring that we're have at least gotten to a point in the pandemic where uh, they you can still continue to have large events. I know that you've made some changes where things are much more outdoors. There are fewer things that are indoors strictly. Uh, that's just to allow people to feel comfortable to do, you know, to, uh, to come to an event like this and not have some of those concerns. But So I, I commend all of you and your staff and volunteers for being able to pull off an event in a very challenging year. So uh, congratulations to all of you for that. So, thank you very much. So also, now, as AmeriCade has evolved, you've also you've branched out a little bit. You have something called Dirt Days. And so that started, what, two or three years ago? no
3: that was probably seven years ago i had the crazy idea to run an adventure bike rally simultaneous to america america is a lot is a very heavy long 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 hours of work during the week and i thought why not run an adventure bike rally at the same time which was pure insanity and it nearly killed me and i got smart about <coughs> two or three years into it and, and detached it from america so now it happens in mid-august typically several months after the june americade and it's it's sort of like an american but for adventure bike riders so most of it is on dirt a lot of camping seminars demos it's a lot of fun people really enjoy it and it's growing really rapidly so where is that based? currently it's based in north haverill uh new hampshire right on the new hampshire vermont border and i should mention that uh, tour is a big partner so it's actually the tour Days Adventure
0: Bike Rider. right right well i mean i know the adventure bike market has grown a lot we've tested a lot of adventure bikes at, at rider over the years, and uh, so that is that has been, especially since the Great Recession, when you know motorcycle sales dropped way down, is that adventure bike sales has been a big part of you know keeping the industry thriving. I know that a lot of people come, one of the things I know people love to come to uh, America for, and I imagine this is true at, at Dirt Days, is for the demo rides. Do you get demo rides at, at Dirt Days as well? We do. Uh, this
3: year we hosted uh, Yamaha Triumph, and uh, a name that I never thought would be at an adventure bike rally, Harley Davidson certainly the hot ticket so how was that received it was fascinating to watch the introduction of the harley davidson pan america uh watching watching the comments on social media overwhelmingly early on negative comments and boy they are not saying that now for a version one product it was amazing i haven't even written it but i'm just going to tell you what i hear from everybody else and that is it's a remarkable product it's earned a lot of
0: respect really quickly yeah bill so as a former PR director for harley
1: davidson what do you think of the pan america well the nice thing is christian was busy running dirt days i got to ride the pan america because normally during america i never get to go out on demo rides but he had things under control anyway long story short i really like the bike a lot it's it's very unlike a traditional long stroke soft tuned harley davidson it's a it's sort of an american gs or an american uh ducati it's got Power throughout the range. It's got a feature that no other bike has right now, which is some people call it the camel. Which it means when you're not on it, it sort of settles down. In other words, it, it, I guess it comes with an optional package for It's the one I rode, which means you can have a bike with eight or nine inches of suspension travel that you can still flat foot on the ground. So most anybody can get on it and feel reasonably comfortable. It's got. Bags of power from the 2,000 RPM right up to, I guess it's 9,000, I'm not sure. <clears throat> it's one of the few bikes I can't say I really tapped it out all the way. Uh, it had more than enough to entertain me. Um, I liked everything about it. I, I could I could nitpick some tiny little knits, but it's awfully darn good, and I'm told they're sold out now, and I can see why they are, because they're a, a real a shock to the market. Yeah, Harley Davidson has claimed that since it was released,
0: it's been the top-selling adventure bike in the United States. So, so I have another question. So, we have Mercade, there is Dirt Days, that typically happens in August. And so, actually, I got a phone call from Christian last week, and you were just on your way home from Rolling Through America. Can you tell us about what Rolling Through America is? So,
3: Rolling Through America is a—it's our tour company. And we typically run one or two tours, they're high-end tours, they last several days long, usually midweek, week usually a Monday through a Thursday. And we identify a great riding area, and we find really uh, sort of uh, amazing destinations, high-end lunch destinations. And I limit it to 100 people. The tagline is, America wows 100,000 people every year, imagine what we do for only 100. <laughs> Uh, so it's fun. It's, it's very hands on, and it's a small, you know, it's a 100 person group. So for a group tour, hundreds seems like a lot. But uh, we run multiple waves. It doesn't feel big, and uh, people love it. You know? and it sells out very, very quickly when we open it up. So where was Rolling Through America this year? In Roanoke, Virginia. Holy mackerel, the ride is big down there. So we based it out of Roanoke and went up and into uh, Blue Ridge Parkway for one day and had. Uh, Stopped at vineyards up on the ridge and went another day over some other ridges and ended up having lunch at this uh, place that clearly hosts of state just outside of washington and
0: it's, it's fun it's
3: beautiful awesome cool. awesome so
0: uh some of the people here may know that you know Ryder has had contributors from all over the place over the years and one of them was was bill dutcher himself he wrote an article and had some photographs from What was a bucket list trip, it would be for a lot of people, but I know it was partly because your sons were involved. Uh, We were just talking about it earlier, about the trip down to the southern tip of South America to Ushuaia. Tell us a little bit about how that trip came about.
1: I guess I'd always been curious to know what it would be like to go as far south as you can go. In the southernmost point on the Earth, that's any continent, the southernmost point is, well, it's close to it, a little town called Ushuaia uh in southern argentina and this is the very southern tip of south america so um i got together with uh, i guess it was uh, Skip Mascaros' outfit and we rented klr's in santiago chile and it was jenny's idea for me to bring to my two sons because i had been looking for some riding but in my age i couldn't seem to find anybody who was willing to spend the time and the money to do it. Um, and then she said, Well why don't you take Mickey and Christian? And I said, Well, it's too expensive, frankly. <laughs> and she said, Yeah, but it'll be a lifetime experience, which of course it was. And it was an over the top lifetime experience. It took me about about five weeks. And we as I said we rented bikes. So I flew down with my older son, Mickey, was a Spanish teacher and that was convenient because he was able to help me brush up on my ancient school in Spanish so that it was slightly better. And Mickey and I and several other people rode down towards Ushuaia, uh, in Tierra del Fuego. And then Christian flew down and swapped in the saddle with Mickey. So Mickey went back after having ridden for two weeks, and Christian just then rode the following three weeks. And uh, when we got down to Ushuaia, he and I got a gleam in our eye and thought, I wonder how far you can really go if you get on dirt roads. So we found, I mean, there's a lot of dirt roads that took us down there, but I'm talking real secondary roads. And we found a place that is pretty much as far as you can go under any conditions. Uh, and it was, it was it was more meaningful to me than I expected, because when I took a picture of him against this rusty lighthouse in the middle of nowhere, I actually choked up. It was, I'm choking up now. <laughs>
0: Christian, what was it like doing a trip like that with your dad?
3: I've had so many experiences with my dad riding a motorcycle, not, not exotic like that, that are just amazing just because my father, or my father sitting beside me at 80 years old and still rides like a bat out of hell. You <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. uh, But that was an amazing trip to an amazing place, and just being able to explore in these far off remote areas was incredible, and that particular ride was like riding through Middle Earth. You picture those early scenes of that movie of uh, Lord of the Rings. Beautiful, rolling, green, sort of uh, mossy greens, ocean right there, this uh, sinewy ribbon of dirt just like,
0: dancing up and down and just exploring. It was just so much fun, yeah. Like, clearly a once in a lifetime opportunity. Awesome, that sounds like a great trip. That's actually one of the places on my bucket list, but uh, where, where do you have left, you
1: know, places that you want to go ride? Oh, let's see, well I, I checked one off when I did Northern Labrador, which is as far north as you can go in the eastern half of the US. Uh, that to through Bay. Uh, I kind of like to do that, but this country is so darn wide. You get people like Fred Rao who think nothing about going from coast to coast, but man, when I grind my way across Nebraska, <laughs> you appreciate how big this country is. So that's been an impediment to doing it. I don't know, maybe we'll fly out to Alaska get some bikes and go, go up there. The other place I'd like to do would be Nord Cap, Northern Norway, which is the most northerly point. Maybe, period. I'm not sure if that's more or less northerly than Prudhoe Bay, do you know? But
0: I don't know offhand, but I think it's probably higher up there, yeah. It's prob- it's e- a little bit easier to get to. You have to take a ferry to that northern part of it. Uh, or is it paved the whole way, but I know with Prudhoe Bay you're going to be dealing with a lot more gravel and, and big trucks and things. It's, I think it's probably more uh, an anxiety-inducing ride to get to Prudhoe Bay than it is. So
1: Christian and I kind of enjoy gravel. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's entertaining because you got to pay real attention to what you're doing. Yeah,
3: I want to share just a quick story. Sure. Right. This is a variety of how with my dad. This is the sort of adventures that we enjoy. We went out riding one day when everybody said, "Don't go out riding." And they have these things called willow laws. These are there's a there's a saying that says, "Below 40 degrees latitude, there is no law. Below 50 degrees, there is no God." <laughs> and you're riding along and these, these wind gusts can come out of nowhere that are, are violent out of the mountains because there's very little that interrupts the flow of, around the earth down there. And everybody said this going to be a high wind day. We were in the Torres del Paine uh, National Park. It looks like uh, Mordor, but once again, the Lord of the Rings reference. And uh, so everybody stayed, and Bill and I decided to go on a ride. On the way back, to get back to where we were going, we had to ride over this ridge, and below the ridge was a lake. And on the lake, there was a catamaran that had an anemometer, a wind speed meter. And that plays a, 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 a role in the story. We're riding along, and I see Bill getting pushed by a very severe wind suddenly out of the blue. 45 degree angle, it, 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 uh, it exceeded his uh, traction limits. He, he actually chattered both wheels right off the uh, road onto a bank. Same with me moments later, we crest the hill. and shortens sure because this is kind of a large story, I'll make it quick. We crest the hill, and it was like a jet was taking off in front of us. All we could do was lock both brakes. Have our helmets and we were side by side, and it just was <laughs> deafening, loud, and uh, pebbles were coming up off the round, around uh, around around inside our helmet. It was deafening, and we just, both of us were just in survival mode. And while this was going on, or actually as it started to subside, we looked at each other and we realized we were both laughing hysterically in this insanity. And uh, we rode back home, and we ended up uh, meeting somebody who said that anemometer that day during that windstorm registered like a 98 mile an hour bus. Wow and we were on the ridge above it, so it was crazy, but Bill and I, and this is been, I don't know, 70, something, I don't know, so
0: like, you know. Well, I mean, there's there's a saying that adventure isn't fun while it's happening, I mean, it always makes for the more indelible memory, the good story, and so forth, but there are times where, whether you've had a breakdown, you've run out of gas, you uh, you know, when something goes a little bit sideways and you've got to either endure it like you were with the wind or you've got to figure out a way to get through it. So, well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, you know, to learn more about the background of AmeriCade, you know, again, as a family-run organization, it clearly this is a rally that reflects who you are as individuals, your values. You, you know, again, said that from the very beginning you established this as a family-friendly, a... a You know, um, people oriented event. It's not really about spectacle. It's not really about, you know, uh, having a raucous party. People clearly come here to have a good time, but, you know, there's different events for different people, and this is clearly an event that is geared towards people who enjoy touring. They enjoy spending time with, you know, friends, uh, other rally goers, uh, and so forth. So uh, it's been a pleasure to be uh, involved with Americade. This is only my fourth Americade as writer editors we tend to skip around a little bit because you know um and so i've come here and really appreciate the opportunity to be and again this is after coming through a pandemic this is a a special america to be involved with and before we sign up because i know we've got this night in the round table before i gave a a talk a couple of years ago bill you told me about when you were i think this was when you were graduating from college is this something that because i know you have a racing background that you said that you Done competition on just about any kind of surface. It's been, it's been pavement. It's been dirt. It's been ice. But um, what was the intersection of your racing and your college graduation?
1: Whoa. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. I'm, I'm probably one of the few humans who graduated with his racing leathers under his gown. And I, as luck would have it, my first sponsored road race was in early June. Uh, was at Laconia, also known as Loudon, also known as Broward, uh, no, yeah, uh, it's, it's several different names. Yeah, in any case, it's now become more of a NASCAR track, but uh, in any case, I've, managed, I, I've done some club road racing, and I've done really well in it, and I was able to convince the Yamaha dealer in town to sponsor me on their new Yamaha road racer. Now, this will show you how old I am. This was in June of 65, and the new Yamaha TD-1A had just come out. So in any case, wouldn't you know it, my first potential sponsored road race was the same day as graduation. So I I had the road racing boots on, they were black, I got them all shined up, and I I had one-piece road racing leathers, so I just tied the arms around my waist, and I just looked like a portly student getting his (laughs) diploma. Um, But the problem was, I promised my mother that I'd be there for the obligatory picture, so graduation is over. Oh, and my race started at one o'clock. Graduation might have been at 10, and I had just time. I timed it out. I had old no Corvair, and I'd actually pre-run it up to Laconia, and I knew how long it took. I was wasting time looking for my parents, and I never did find them. It turned out they'd had a fight. They were a very dysfunctional couple, but anyway, I'm still married to wife number one, amazing enough. <laughs> She's good. It's got to be special, but anyway, so um, I was late getting going, and I leapt in the car, roared up there, got into a bit of a struggle with the AMA executive at the, at the gate, I'm being kind calling of going in an executive, chewing on his cigar telling me that there was no need for a rush. And I could hear my, the bikes on the line, and they're, they I know they're getting ready to start. In any case, long story short, while well, I'm arguing with him, they go off, they start. And in fact, Kevin Cameron, I don't know how many of you read Cycle World magazine, but Kevin was a classmate of mine. And he was pushing the bike back into the pits and I come running down there, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And I tried to zip my leathers up and they got stuck around my belly button. And it was a hot day, I figured the heck with it. Um, you know, The air cooling will feel good. Stretched out on the bike and I had a good helmet, fortunately, because the way the story goes. Um, I, I was doing pretty well, actually. I, I started a lap and a half late, and I, I managed to unlap myself, which means I was faster than the leader, but there was no way on earth I was going to catch him on. I think I passed him mean, maybe on lap 12, and it was a 20 lap race. It was mathematically impossible for me to even finish in the top 10, but I was so juiced up I didn't feel it. I didn't think about that part, I was just thinking about every corner. Anyway, to make the long story short, <laughs> I which I can't do. Uh, <laughs> About a lap, maybe a lap 14, I felt like I was being stabbed in the back a bunch of times. And I realized that my letters had been open. It's apparently scooped up some bees or a wasp or two and they were stinging the heck out of my back. So I, so I had this moment of decision about do I leap on the brakes and roll on the ground or just suck it up. So, so I sucked it up. And that may or may not relate to what happened a couple of laps later when I was trying to you know, there's a S, certain S bend. In an S turn, when you're trying to get through an S turn fast, you want apex late on the first part of it because that sets you up properly for the next part of it. So you want to come in high and late and then come down. Well, unfortunately, somebody was on my line. Unsurprisingly, there was, so I was passing. So I had to come in down low, and there was that moment when I thought, I'll bet I can pull it down just a little bit more. Because usually with a road racing bike, for example, if the tires are overinflated, they will chatter when you're about to break loose. Or if they're underinflated, they have kind of a muddy feeling, kind of a ever harder racer, scroogey feeling. I hadn't felt either one, so I had reason to believe. I'm going to pull it down a little further. Well, bucket on the straight, off I go, 105, ground sky, ground sky, ground sky, ground sky. And this becomes a long story, but I'm lying there wondering if I'm dying, thinking to myself, well, I'm not growing. It doesn't hurt, I mean, this is what dying's like. It's not too bad, and then, then I became concerned about how many parts of me were spread all over the hill. I'd never crashed at any speed vaguely like this, maybe 45 or 50, and so I did, was doing inventory. I'm really shortening this story, believe sure or not. <laughs> Take, I'll tell the story, all right. So I'm taking inventory, I'm lying there, and the corner workers are coming down, and you can hear, yeah, Lesto son, help is coming, help is coming. That's not what you want to hear when you're lying there. And and so I'm taking inventory. I get My legs, I can feel feet touching each other. This is good. I can't see anything. Everything is a red haze. That's got me really concerned. But I seem to have legs and the knees are touching. This is good. Okay, see if the hands work. Yeah, I seem to have a torso. Let's let's take a chance and see what's going on up here. Everything's red. This can't be good. So I get up to my neck and it's really sticky and heavy. And I had been an English major in college, enough to read Moby Dick when they used to harpoon the the white whales, it it would always be this thick, heavy, long blood. So I got got this in my (laughs) head, oh man, I must be grievously wounded, man, because I got that, I guess I see red, and I got a sticky feeling on my neck. This cannot be good. And now, well, okay, let's see what's going on with my eyes. And I, I swear to God, I was afraid. I was gonna encounter like snail eyeballs hanging down around my cheek somewhere. Because I'm reaching up like this, trying to see where are my eyes Is my eyes in the socket, because I can't see, everything's red. And I get up there and there are things in the socket. This is good. Well why the heck can't I see? And about that point, when I'm hearing the, the, the ambulance wailing in the distance and my knuckles drag across the inside of the face shield and there's these faces looking down at me. It seems that the last flip I took was like a bucket loader. and shoved all this red mud up inside my face shield. And I was dingy enough and the sun was out. That's why I couldn't see. So long on my shoulder, I only have a little scar tissue on one elbow. The bike was messed up pretty badly though. Right on, well, that's quite the
0: graduation story. So, again, Bill Dutcher, Ginny Dutcher, Christian Dutcher, everybody give them a round of applause, please. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to the Rider Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating, and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com, where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Rider Magazine, which is published 12 times a year.